Tens of thousands have lost their lives in the French Quarter alone from disease, massive fires, and killings. Our city's history is strange enough. We don't have to fictionalize it. Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Cece Chapman. And we are recording in New Orleans, Louisiana. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Spooky. Why is it so spooky? Because this episode, we're going to cover our recent adventures at the 2019 New Orleans-based Overlook Film Fest. Staged in the ghost of the old canal place, <laughs> which is closed forever. Forever. It was super weird watching a bunch of movies in the ghost of the old job that I used to work at, but also super nice because we were just walking in with drinks and concessions from the street, and no one was delivering food to people's seats, and there's no one there to fight through the crowd or anything. We were just watching movies with a bunch of horror nerds in the same four theaters over and over again. With a couple exceptions, we went to, went to La Petite a couple times, but yeah. most of it was at Canal Place, and it was a very odd experience. And I also had a press pass this year, so I saw a bunch of movies. Very fancy. We're cool. I could have used that pass to go see these like big premieres for Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die, and Ma, and what was the other one? Oh, The Lodge from the people who did Goodnight Mommy, which we talked about last episode. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to see these big horror films a little early before they uh, make it to like wide release in like AMC theaters in about a month. But we didn't do that. We went and saw as many small movies as we could that we weren't sure was going to get distribution otherwise. Yeah, no, we, we've learned our lesson over the years going to the New Orleans Film Fest that you can fight through the crowds to go see a film a month early. But by and large, it's just not worth it. You're going to be able to see the film again. And... So much of the stuff that we saw, like in exchange for these bigger movies at previous film fests, have never gotten distribution. There was one film I really liked from a few years back called Cheerleader that just now got Amazon Prime, I think, distribution. Uh, it's been like three years since I've seen it, four yeah. years before it got anything. So I don't know. It's worth finding these little things. And a movie's always better when you see it on the big screen. So, like, I don't know if I would have enjoyed Cheerleader as much if I wasn't, like, immersed in it the way I was in that experience. Yeah, I would have gotten bored at some point and looked at my phone, and that kind of shatters it. Meh, whatever. Speaking of which, you never get to see shorts in any other context on the big screen. So I went to That's one true. shorts block while I was there. Thanks to a recommendation from Charles Piper. Yeah. Which, should I tell the story? Yeah, tell it. Okay, so Charles looked really familiar to me. And, like, I was really weirded out by it. I was like, does he look like my friend Jeremy? They're both filmmaker people. No, it's not that. And, like, I specifically, like, could think of him, like, in monster makeup. And he just, he looked so familiar. And I was like, ah, this is weird and creepy. I couldn't put my finger on it. And then he reached out to me and Brandon after the festival uh, and friended us on Facebook. And we have one mutual friend, uh, our friend Ariana, who lives in L.A. But, you know, he also lives in L.A. A lot of people know Ariana. Okay, it's not that. And I'm like, ah, oh, what is it? What is it? And then for some reason, it dawned on me that I remember seeing a picture of him as a small child 
already into monster makeup like already dressed up as like freddy krueger or someone like that and i was like i knew him from tumblr i used to follow this guy on tumblr because he like would like show off pictures that he like drew as a small child of like horror movie stuff or he was dressed in a costume from a horror movie as a baby um so like this has been like a lifelong thing for him and so it's still active too youngmonsters.tumblr.com yeah all the porn is gone from tumblr but you can still look at b-movie stills yeah and in monster movie makeup like it's great uh but yeah so mystery finally solved I kind of sort of knew this guy on the internet before we met him in person. Film fests are weird. Yeah, we met him in line, total mm-hmm. stranger, and he convinced me to come out to the shorts package on Sunday, and it ended up being my favorite thing I saw that whole day. Saw a pretty wide range of like experimental ideas, which is kind of what you want to see at those. Mm-hmm. Half of them I didn't like, but half of them I loved. There was this wholesome stop motion movie that like played with like gender and sexuality and stuff in a really interesting way and just also happened to have ghosts in it Uh, so it fit the genre template because if we haven't mentioned it so far overlook film fest is specifically just genre filmmaking it's supposed to be horror but sometimes they go a little sci-fi sometimes a little crime thriller i think there was an entire panel discussion discussing what is a horror movie so (laughs) no one really knows well this one's called undercovers and it's basically just like a short wholesome thing that happens to have ghosts in it so that's what qualified it there was another one that was like a spoof of Werner Herzog's like nature documentaries where you like they show like a image of a chicken just pecking at grain in a yard and it's like what goes on in the demented mind of the chicken it is the entirety of existence that one's called the obliteration Mm -hmm. of the chickens Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. um, but also Charles had a short at the uh, festival called Malacostrata no, I said that wrong. Mala Castracata. Ooh. I still can't say it. You try. Oh, no. Mala Castracata. Oh, no. It's too I hard. I can't say it. <laughs> oh, no. I'm a Philistine. Well, he came in from LA to do like Q&As of these two shorts blocks for it. And it's funny because it is a short about crawfish. Ah. Uh, so it was very appropriate that it was playing in New Orleans. This guy has like writer's block. And his wife is, like, sunbathing and kind of, like, interrupting him while he's, like, trying to tap into his muse. Uh, So he's kind of this, like, asshole, like, faux intellectual. And he daydreams that this crawfish is, like, crawling up his wife's leg while he's sunbathing to, like, pinch her as, like, punishment for, like, annoying him. And the daydream sort of, like, mixes with reality and spirals out of control where his wife gets pregnant with this crawfish baby. Oh, no. It's very John Waters, too. (laughs) Oh, for sure. The giant lobster from Multiple Maniacs. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and in this fantasy slash the nightmare reality we live in now, uh, she gives birth to the result, which fits in with that young monster's Tumblr we were just talking about yeah. and his like general appreciation for like monster makeup because she gives birth to this little creature that is like half fleshy human baby with like puffy mammal nipples mm. and also just a crawfish body. Mm, yes. Um, and the baby obviously drives him even more insane than the wife did because babies cry a lot and need you and need your attention. You can't just lose yourself in your art when you have a child. And it comes to a uh, final conflict that I can't spoil because it's a short film. You don't want to give the whole thing away. Yeah. But if you have any appreciation for like monster movie makeup and like traditional B-movie like mayhem, this little short film is like really concise and lovingly crafted. Uh, it's got an appreciation for like gross out monster creations and you can watch the uh trailer for it on charles's twitter i don't know if the uh, full film will be on like vimeo or something later in the year maybe so 
maybe I should spell that out. M-A-L-A-C-O-S-T-R-A-C-A. Malacostraca. That can't be right. <laughs> I could try it 10 more times. I'm not going to get it right. Yeah, no. We're, we'll just, we'll, we're moving on. You guys can Google it and Google correct you. Yes. So I don't want to talk about everything we saw because because of the press pass, I saw 10 features. Um, I can run through a few that were okay. I didn't see anything I like actively disliked. The closest I got to that were these two splatter comedies. Uh, the first movie we watched and the last movie I watched. Um, one was called Porno, mm-hmm. and it was about this like group of movie theater employees in like this Christian small town who unleashed an evil succubus who's like haunting this porno reel in their theater. The succubus like preys on their lust and their hidden like temptations, and basically disembowels them in like gore soaked mayhem. And the final film I saw was called Satanic Panic, which was directed by one of the writers at Fangoria. Uh, her name's Chelsea Stardust. Uh, this is her first feature, and it's about a pizza delivery driver who happens to be a virgin and finds herself like the intended virgin sacrifice at this like satanic ritual to summon Baphomet, and also has like you know tortured by your sexual um, repression kind of vibe to it as well. I felt the same way about both movies. The jokes were not funny in either one, even though everyone around me was like slapping their knee and laughing. It reminded me of being at those like Deadpool screenings where like everyone finds it so funny and I'm just looking around like, what is everyone laughing at? But these movies have something that Deadpool doesn't have, which is just utter commitment to just gore and violence, genital mutilation and like weird sexuality. Like the weirder the sex got and like less vanilla the sex got as they went along, I had more fun watching them, uh, which is pretty rare for a comedy to have fun when you're not laughing at the jokes. So those are both like three star they were okay experiences. I got too drunk for porno, so I I didn't like it, but I also am not a good judge of that because like, I would close my eyes sometimes. I would just be like, ah, I'm tired, whatever. <laughs> but I did really like the actual porno segment in porno. Yeah. That part was fun. It was like good 1960s Kenneth Anger, double exposure, gel, color gel type satanic, fake satanic stuff. Yeah. It was fun. And that's kind of what interested me was that like, I don't know, most comedies where the jokes aren't funny, you're bored. But mm-hmm. these two movies have like that satanic occult imagery. And that's the best imagery. I mean, thanks, Catholics. You really you really help boost the quality of like <laughs> satanic imagery. Yeah, so th- I don't know. It's like you have something to do even if you're not like digging the humor, which is yeah. pretty rare for a comedy, I think. Yeah. I also saw this movie, Gwen, which was very much in that A24 type horror film where it's like all atmospheric dread and very quiet. This one is even drier than, like, The Witch. Um, It's this small family drama in Industrial Revolution Wales. I love Wales. Where this family that's basically whittled down to one mother and her two children are trying to maintain ownership of their farm. And this, like, evil aristocrat who, like, owns a quarry and um, a factory nearby is trying to seize their land and make it part of his empire his little industrialist empire so he can wear his top hat and walk around and own everything. (laughs) It's even drier than the witch in those movies where like those, there's like the evil, you know, part of society. That's like the uh, theme of the movie. But then there's also like a supernatural evil to like drive home the metaphor. Um, In this case, you know, capitalism is the monster and there is no other monster to back it up. What? Right. I know. I found that kind of disappointing. It's not a horror movie then. It's just a movie about a bully. That's what's annoying about it. It tried to like, play into horror themes and tropes where like 
the main character will have these nightmares where like there'll be literal jump scares where like someone's like self mutilating or like a lightning strikes and like breaks the silence and it's like really shocking moments like kind of jolt you in your seat but then it doesn't really deliver the genre goods where it matters hmm. but it's Man. still like a handsome well acted drama do you remember that movie The Little Stranger last year I had a similar problem with that one too I don't remember that one uh, it had Ruth Wilson and Donald Gleason in it they're in this like gothic type mansion oh yeah there's a lot yeah. of economic hardship and class yeah, and differences that one's also they they didn't play it up in this version very much because it's it's from a, a previous property um but there's also supposed to be like a homoerotic subtext or like a homosexual subtext to it like one of the characters is repressed oh yeah because uh, it's written by the lady who wrote salt which was turned into carol so all of her stuff yeah has like a homosexual undertone yeah and so they didn't use that in it and so we were kind of disappointed because you know they cut that stuff, and then the house in Little Stranger seems like it's haunted. But then nothing ever happens or comes of that. Like, everybody in the family seems cursed, but then nothing really comes of that either. That's kind of how Gwen is. Like, okay. it's just kind of grim and brutal, and you're like, man, life sucks at the mm-hmm. end, which is true. And, you know, capitalism is the monster. I'm not going to argue with the movie, but... You know, I usually like it when that's true and there's an also like a physical monster that's like representing that in some kind yeah, of Yeah, like, like the evil industrialist way. capitalist is also a werewolf. Yeah. And his rapacious need to destroy the land around him and to own everything is, you know, equal to his, you know, need for blood. <laughs> exactly. You get it. <laughs> the movie is very similar to The Witch, I think, and it's like set up because it's like the, this like isolated farm outside of this community that's being like shunned, you know. And in the role that Kate Dickey played in The Witch, uh, there's Maxine Peake is the um, mother in this scenario. And she's the girlfriend from the bisexual that starts the company with uh, the main character. yeah, I like her. Yeah, she was really good in this, too. So it was nice to see her do something substantial outside of that TV show that not enough people watched in the first place. Hey, also go on Hulu and watch uh, The Bisexual. Oh, it's great. It's great. Also watch this movie called The Vast of Night, which Mm -hmm. I believe won, like, top jury awards at the festival. And I kind of get it. It wasn't like my favorite thing I saw, but it's this really handsomely staged, impressively written drama. Um, it's set in 1950s New Mexico at this isolated radio broadcast station um, where most of the town and this like small town community in New Mexico is at this like high school basketball game. And this radio DJ is mostly in communication with the town's switchboard operator, who's like a 16-year-old girl and kind of his protege. Like, he's teaching her how to use all this, like, analog recording equipment and, like, basically training her for his job later. And they're communicating over the phone as he's getting callers, and she's getting callers, and they're both getting reports of strange noises being heard over the radio and strange lights being seen in the sky. And it sort of turns into this traditional, like... Twilight Zone type um, alien invasion UFO investigation between the two of them. Um, what's impressive about it is just that it's mostly dialogue and most of its ideas are conveyed in conversation almost in real time over a single night. And it's just really well acted and performed. Like it, it's almost like a radio drama. Like even the call letters for the radio station are W O T W, which you sort of like over time you're like, oh, that's a War of the Worlds reference. A war of the world. Yeah. Okay. So just saying, it's not the right format for a radio call sign because they they were, they fudged it. They yeah. fudged it. Also, the uh, framing title card um, is a zoom in on like an old cathode ray TV that's playing a um, Twilight Zone type show called like The Phantom Realm, 
Mm. Uh, today's episode, The Vast of Night. So they're kind of framing it in this old traditional like sci-fi anthology format. A golden era yeah. anthology, yeah. But it's written kind of like, remember that movie um, Dogfight that we watched recently? It's like over the single night of Vietnam. These like soldiers are going to Vietnam and oh, he like okay, falls yeah. in love with this girl. The title of Dogfight doesn't make any sense to right. me. I think it has something to do with fighting <laughs> or dogs and it has nothing to do with either really. No, it's yes. cruel in a different way. It's cruel in a different way. Uh, also oh. like before sunrise and before sunset. There's like walk and talk dramas. Um, yeah. This is like that, but just like impressively well written and performed for its budget, which yeah. I think is what got it a lot of its attention. Yeah, it's not flashy on the sci-fi effects and stuff. It's It's... Two people in period garb speaking at a rapid fire period pace using proper period vocabulary. It maybe even has the same problem as Gwen where it's like building to like this giant reveal at the end that it really can't deliver on. Um, So you just have to like kind of soak in the like craft of everything that comes before it. Um, But I liked this one more than Gwen. I also saw this movie called Knives and Skin, which actually reminded me a lot of Cheerleader, which we referenced earlier. Um, it just is one of those weird movies you catch at a festival. You're never going to see it anywhere else. It felt like watching an episode of Riverdale on like an overdose of Robitussin is how I would describe it. Uh, this like small town teen goes missing and then everyone around her is bathed in bisexual lighting and like having these like teen romance crises uh, in the absence of her and like unfolding this like Twin Peaksy teen mystery around it. One of those movies that's like pure aesthetic and very like if you wrote a uh, teen noir mystery in like a uh, Trapper Keeper mm-hmm. with like bejeweled uh, rhinestones all over around gel it. pens to write it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of movie. But it has this really interesting thing it does where almost all of the sound cues are these choir arrangements of 80s pop songs. The first one was Our Lips Are Sealed, which like is when I started like falling in love with the movie. And it never stops being weird that they're doing it. And it establishes this, like, kind of, I don't know if this is oxymoronic, but, like, this, like, low-key version of, like, camp and melodrama where it's, like, funny that people are overreacting and acting in this, like, heightened way, but not, like, laugh-out-loud hilarious. It's like, what is going on? Why are they doing that? Yeah. (laughs) Do you remember that, like, side plot on Twin Peaks about the silent runners where she's, like, trying to muffle the sound of the, uh... Yeah, the, like, yeah. The window blinds. Her window uh, curtains make too much noise, so she uses cotton balls to muffle them. And it like goes like multiple episodes of her trying to like through like trial and error to get them to be quieter. This like, movie is entirely that version of like campy humor mm-hmm. and melodrama, except it's all bathed in bisexual lighting. Okay. It's weird, but I enjoyed it. You can see how, like, Cheerleader's kind of, like, a similar vibe. Yeah. Also, all those, like, queer shorts we caught at um, Patois earlier this year. It's mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of a similar, like, DIY filmmaking thing. Um, definitely very divisive. I heard people grumbling about it on the way out. And I also heard other people say it was their favorite thing and they saw at a festival, so. I mean, this crowd, this crowd, like, is always split pretty evenly for a lot of these screenings. Like, uh, we did not like porno very much, but then other people really loved it and said that was the best thing they saw. But also those same people were, like, making sounds of, like, disgust during, like, scenes, like, depicting homosexuality, so... And that's when I was having fun watching porno. There's, like, weird pegging scenes uh, with the succubus and, like, dicks and balls just being, like, ripped open. And, like, you can hear the same bros, like, groaning in the background. I'm like, okay, well, now I'm having fun. Yeah, uh. so, so, yeah, like, <laughs> if a film is divided... It's usually along those lines. Yeah, I mean, there's a pretty harsh contrast 
on opposite ends of the scale where there's like some people who are really into queer representation and like weird sexuality and and gore uh, and gore <laughs> like there is definitely like a queer horror contingent but then there's also like the internet you know reddit neckbeard bros who are really into horror as well and like but we all have to hang out guys right for, we, for days you see the same people over and over again at different screenings you just you just go, all gotta hang out just. i mean the original idea of the festival when it was in portland and in colorado it was all in one hotel mm-hmm. and everyone who was there was isolated and basically had to be friends over the course yeah. of a few days. Apparently, apparently those ones were really, really fun because like all the producers and actors uh, and celebrities who'd fly in, you were, you were all trapped in a hotel together. Yeah. Like, so like every there was no like paparazzi, there was no press. I mean, there was members of the you know press, but they were there to see the movies themselves, uh, just hanging out for three or four days doing like charades at night and that kind of bullshit like yeah this is a little more spread out when i went to go buy um very trashy blu-rays from the uh, vinegar syndrome table i walked all the way from the cbd to the marini to get to the table and then back to if you're not from here that's quite far that's a good 30 45 minute walk in the new orleans summer Uh, it was very sweaty i spent most of um Knives and skin, uh, leaning forward in my seat so my back could dry off instead of getting my sweat everywhere. It's very disgusting. Gross. Horrifying. <laughs> and may I interest you in other desired supposes in our exclusive boutique? I'm fine for now, thank you. Then I would like you to announce your locus of residence, followed by the numbers to your telephone. So we should count down our like top five features at mm-hmm. this point. All the best things were the things we saw together. Whoa. Yeah, I, I, that worked out pretty well. I have maybe one curveball you didn't happen to catch. Oh. So number five, I have greener grass, mm. uh, which is something we've been looking at since it premiered at Sundance earlier this year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've had that one on my radar for a while. Um, I think I was the one who asked you to add that to the notebook. So Greener Grass is... Whew, how to describe it? Okay, so it is in the same vein of horror as Too Many Cooks or as a Tim and Eric sketch that goes on for too long. It is that kind of uncomfortable, surrealistic, the joke purposely goes on for far too long kind of horror. Or like... um uncut footage of a bear it's it's that kind of thing the premise of it is that these like soccer moms and this like you know tim burtony kind of like uh suburban you know tim burton movies always have that like clean cut suburban uh mm-hmm. the 1950s like vision of suburbia but like brought into present day yeah so it looks like that everyone's color-coded like a wife and a husband wear the same color clothes as their child and their house is also like color-coded to match them it's about this like community of soccer moms and this like pristine suburban neighborhood who are all trying to one-up each other they Mm -hmm. want to have like better children who get into better math classes than the other kid and have like the bigger pool and you know keeping up with the joneses kind of thing hence the name greener grass right and uh while they're at these soccer games both the kids and the moms compete for superiority in this way and somewhere in the background, there is a grocery bagger who has started to kill women and take over their lives and their houses. But the movie is very little time or concerned about this, like, grocery bag murderer. Yeah, no. no it's mostly it's an most, afterthought. Mostly an afterthought. Which is also why it's the weakest and worst part of the movie. It's the only part of the movie I actively disliked. Yeah, I, I the mean, payoff for that was uncomfortable. Horror, but, eh. 
And it's also hard to describe any kind of plot or like reasoning for how those two things fit mm-hmm. in because the movie is from front to end just total illogical chaos. It's completely irreverent. You cannot get your firm grasp on how anything's working or even who anyone is because the rules change constantly. Yeah. Um, and it's Reality is definitely broken in this. Yeah. Um, it also relies heavily on like body humor, like really gross bodily fluid type imagery. So like the poster for this or the image that that Overlooked used was saliva dripping from braces between two people. Like, it's like two mouths or one mouth with, like, the string of saliva. Like, it's a lot of that kind of imagery. Because every single adult in the film has braces. Every single one. Why, you ask? I do not know. They don't explain it. (laughs) Some of it's highly relatable. Like, suburban moms, like, cannot understand that not every child is gifted, that children are along a bell curve. They're like, well, why isn't my son gifted? Why isn't he in the the gifted class? Well, Why isn't he in rocket math? Like, yeah, they're obsessed with rocket math and getting their kids into rocket math. And so, like, that part, like, yes, no, like, white people, like, that is their favorite thing is getting their kids into gifted classes. I know because my mom really should not have gotten me into all those gifted classes. It did not do Oh, yeah, I was in rocket math and I had a D in that class. Yeah, no, like, I was always in gifted stuff, which then made me feel like I was special. And then I never did my work. Or like uh, Beck Bennett's character in the film is obsessed with how clean and beautiful his pool water is to the point where he starts bottling it and carrying it around with him. And he like refuses tap water when he's out at restaurants and like pours his own pool water into his like ice glass. It's so fucking disgusting. He makes popsicles out of his pool water. <laughs> One of the creepiest shots in the entire film are Beck Bennett swimming at night and just gulping water every time he like pumps he's, his He's arms. not even swimming. He's like walking up and down the pool, <laughs> pool with water. his mouth. Like like a like one of those whales with the baleen teeth just like filtering out all the plankton. Just gloom, <laughs> gloom, gloom. In addition to him, uh, Darcy Carden is in the cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary Holland, who I love from like Comedy Bang Bang appearances. Um, Janice Cabravo, who directed Lemon a couple years ago. It was a really fucked up movie with Brad Gelman in it. Yeah. You know, a lot of UCB LA comedy people just completely running amok and making fun of like flyover state suburbia. Probably half of them are from that area of the country and making fun of their parents. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, it was really funny, but also really exhausting. If you don't have the patience for, like, watching, say, four or five episodes of Tim and Eric's show back-to-back, if you can't do that, you might not like this. This might be too much for you. There is a much stronger, like, feminine, like, viewpoint in this film. It's directed by a woman. Um, you know, obviously it's about mothers competing for attention. They're not necessarily competing for men. They're just mostly competing for superiority over one another. Even when one of the characters like is trying to like compete for the attention of a guy, it never comes to anything. It's like you, she finally won. Should but no, nothing happens. No, it's more about systematically making sure that she is in a better hierarchy than than her her best friend, quote unquote. Yeah, who's actually her best enemy. Yeah. Yeah, it's more about competition between these two women and the men and the children and all the other characters are just sort of like... Accessories. Bargaining chips, yeah. Or like Barbie, you buy her accessories and yeah, yeah. then eventually <laughs> you, you choose a new favorite Barbie. So you, you pair that Barbie up with a different Ken and then you move them to the better Barbie dollhouse. It's it's essentially just that. About there the same is like some creepy uh, dollhouse stuff in the film as There's well. There's a lot of creepy dollhouse stuff in the film. It's weird. And there's a lot of divorce in the movie. And uh, speaking of divorce, the uh, next movie in the list almost like ruined our marriage. Um, it's called Come to Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> really? That's how you're going to introduce it? No. It did not almost ruin our marriage, okay? 
Uh, when I was leaving a screening, I was walking down Decatur to go to Le Petite, and I was accidentally trailing Elijah Wood to the next movie on the docket um, because he was going to be there for a Q&A, and Cece wanted to come meet him as well. No, I did not. <laughs> no, I mean, I've had a lifelong crush on Elijah Wood, but also I recognize that Elijah Wood, the person whose picture was printed in Tiger Beat, is not the same human being that Brandon was accidentally stalking, okay? Like, I recognize the two differences, and I honestly have gotten to the point where I never want to meet anybody that I've ever had a crush on or that I idolize in any way or that I think admiringly of because, you know what? All men are trash. So, you know, actually, I think Elijah was probably quite a mensch. Um, he's probably a very sweet human, but, he's you know. He's looking pretty cute in some crisp denim overalls and a printed T-shirt. And carrying a satchel around the French Quarter. Very ridiculous, man. And he, he did the Q&A after the movie and was, you know, as adorable and charming as you'd expect. I don't know what's wrong with me this film fest, but I had to pee during, like, every single screening I was at. And I go to the movies all the time and I don't have to pee during them, so I was being weird. But when I went out to use the restroom during this screening... uh Elijah Wood and the executive producer for this film have obviously seen it a million times and don't need to see it again. Uh, so they were both out in the lobby of the the Le Petit Theater reading the donor names for like the big fancy donors who made this theater possible and like you know like being like ooh look at this person's name ooh <laughs> look at this one and it was like such a like a banal adorable game to play with another person it's like when you sit at the end of a movie theater and you read the credits and you're like "Ooh, look at that person's name ho ho <laughs> see more butts <laughs> um so they were just playing that game which was fun and adorable yeah and it's something that a nice person would probably do while waiting for the movie screening to let out so they could do the q a would you describe the movie they were here to promote as fun and adorable and cute oh. God, no. So gross. No, no. This this movie was written by the same guy who did Greasy Strangler. Yeah. And it was directed by Ant... Timpson. Timpson, who he produces a lot of horror films. Uh, I so think this well was known. his directorial debut. It is. Or his like first feature in a really long time, because I think he made some films when he was really young, but this is his first bit of note. Yeah. This is like an official debut. Yeah. I think he's a New Zealand filmmaker, which Elijah Wood obviously like supports a lot of like splatter art from New Zealand. So it makes sense that they were hooked up. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense the Greasy Strangler connection because this movie is gross and repetitive and aggressive and has really fucked up daddy issues just fucked like up that, daddy that issues. movie. Ooh, daddies. But it's a little more grounded in reality, a little less Tim and Eric than that film or uh, Greener Grass. Uh, in this case, Elijah Wood plays this hipster DJ or music producer. He's a hyphenate, a multi-hyphenate. <laughs> He's a hipster asshole and a coward. And he receives a letter from his deadbeat dad, who he hasn't seen since he was a kid, to come meet him in this isolated cabin uh, in the middle of nowhere, I believe in California on the cliffs. He shows up, and his dad is a drunk maniac. And it seems like the only way that their fucked up little family reunion is going to go is going to result in them coming to blows in this like violent fashion. And then as soon as that payoff's about to hit, the movie takes a left turn that I don't want to spoil, but it's fucking weird and gross and just gets more and more violent. There's some like torture porn stuff. There's some Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. grotesque sexual discomfort. There's a lot of just like, 
insults that go on forever and ever the way that they happen in the Greasy Strangler. Like, it's not good enough for his dad to call him a rat fucker. His dad has to call him a rat fucker and says, it's because you stuff rats in your cunt. If, if you died, your skeleton would be full of, like, rat skeletons inside your pelvic area where your cunt was. Like, it just goes on over and on and on. And over and over and over. Like, literally for, like, two minutes, maybe? That's a long time for a piece of dialogue. It's a two-minute eternity, whatever what? the actual span of time was. It just lasts forever. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed this a lot. Yeah. It kind of surprised me how much I enjoyed it. Yeah, no, this was fun as hell. They never really mention it, and I did see that like the Skrillex note has already come out in the press, but uh, Elijah Wood revealed that uh, Skrillex was like part of the visual inspiration for his costuming. But more toned down, but honestly, I'm really upset that nobody mentioned Shit's Creek, because the son in that played by... I'm going to call him Mr. Levy because I can't remember his first name. Dan Levy, maybe? Dan, yeah. yeah. Inspired by Dan Levy's character from Schitt's Creek because it is so similar. The asymmetrical cut of the shirts, the like severe haircut, the extraneous jewelry, like the black painted nails, all of it just like screamed Schitt's Creek. But the difference, I think, in Schitt's Creek, that guy just plays like this like pansexual, like, how would I describe him? Like, just a fet person. Mm-hmm. And in Come to Daddy, this guy's just, like, a coward and a liar. Like yeah, he's, he's, he's just a poser. He's just dressing like somebody who yeah. might be... He's a zesty straight. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, his sexuality and his life and, like, his intellectual inner life, none of it is as interesting as he pretends it is. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, I'm making this assumption the character is a zesty straight. We actually don't know his sexuality or anything about him, really, Maybe. because the few things he says about himself are revealed to be complete and total lies. I think he's a boring coward. Yeah, I think he's a boring coward who knows how cool people dress and dresses like them. Exactly. Dan Levy's character, he would be like, that guy's cool. I'm going to dress like him. Right. And yeah, only because he has no personality or, like, courage to be himself on his his own merit he has to like kind of feed off other people and the dad calls him out on this stuff and like basically brings his lies to a point where he can't continue him anymore and then what he learns over the film is you know both how to deal with the fact that he has an alcoholic dad he hates and also like how to have the courage to fight for himself and to be a person like be a real human being which unlike stuff like Gwen actually like comes to this like stuff that's like actual horror like there's like really gross out horror beats to this film um even though some of the uh dramas like grounded in reality as i'm sure a lot of the press for this film will cover this is actually based and i won't tell you which parts it's based on it's based on a real side of events that happened to the director it was his idea he like mentioned it to uh elijah wood and the person who executive produced it and they were like, yeah, you need to make that into a movie. So then he gave the idea to the writer for Greasy Strangler, Toby. Uh, I don't know his name. I forgot his name. Uh, to to actually write the script. But for I need them, to pay but... attention to that guy because the director from Greasy Strangler's follow up was called something Beverly Left Lynn. One Night With, maybe, or something like and that. And that movie was terrible. Yeah. And it had the look and like the aesthetic of the Greasy Strangler, but there was just nothing going on inside of it. It was just empty feeling and not funny. So I'm wondering if this guy wrote that movie as well or not. Because it seems like if he wrote this and Greasy Strangler, he's the one to keep your eye on and not the director. So I don't know. I, I might be a burgeoning fan of this guy. He's got this really fucked up view of the world and way of interpreting reality that I find fascinating. But yeah, keep an eye out for that one. Come to daddy. <laughs> what an upsetting title. <laughs> the next movie that I want to mention is called Paradise Hills. Ooh. 
Also written by a person that we find interesting, Nacho Vigalondo. <laughs> Brandon finds him interesting. I don't really have an opinion. Yeah, he um, wrote Colossal. Do you remember that movie? With no. Anne Hathaway where she drinks and oh, turns yeah, into a kaiju. Oh, yeah, she became a kaiju. Yeah, it was uh, fun. And he also wrote this really great movie called Time Crimes. Didn't see it. Time Crimes is this like really clever like time loop crime thriller movie. Colossal has these like really big, ridiculous ideas as well. And Paradise Hills also has this like really over the top premise. Very over the top. Um, this like group of young women who don't know each other are all like basically knocked unconscious and dragged to this obedient school. Um, this is like in the near future where there's like hover cars and like very drastic differences between the uh, wealthy and the poor. You know, not unlike today. And they're recrafted from like independent strong young women into you know docile servants of the patriarchy uh, through this obedience school that looks like a garden yeah the whole thing has like the set design of you know pushing daisies or the fall you know anything lee pace might have been in that's not <laughs> um, a marvel movie has like that aesthetic very heavily and it's not playing it for comedy it's playing it very straight so the characters their uniform at this reform school are white puffy princess dresses with white leather bondage harnesses over their chests gorgeous like appearance everything's very like 1940s storybook disney yeah it reminded me most the set design of the rose garden from alice in wonderland yes very much so um very classic golden era disney but set in real life yeah and it's got kind of a Guillermo del Toro like fairy tale vibe to it. It's a dark it. fairy tale, very much. It's about waiting for a prince charming to rescue you versus rescuing yourself. It's got this like uh, Stepford Wives kind of like evil patriarchies sort of like remolding you um, to the point where your own personality disappears to it. But the director, um, her name is Alice Waddington, and this is her first feature-length film. She uses all these different familiar elements and creates this like really weird, like you said, sincere. It's not cheeky or campy in any way. Um, it just sort of commits to this over-the-top premise. And I guess what I found like really fascinating about it was like how alluring this world is. Like mm -hmm. you know, in fairy tales, it's it's a pretty common trope where like the most evil thing in the fairy tale and the most evil realm is like the most enticing. Yeah. Like you want to eat all this beautiful food and like sink into these beautiful dresses and like wear these white leather bondage corsets and, and sleep in the beautiful beds. Yeah. And... and that is your death. Like if you succumb to those sensual pleasures, you lose yourself. And I think the movies like got this convincing version of menace where like basically all these girls do all day. Is it looks like they have like, tea service and do yoga and ballet and like wear these beautiful clothes you're like who wouldn't want to do that one of the characters uh her family's problem with her was that she's fat and she's like okay well obviously a month of exercise isn't going to change anything i'm not going to like i'm not going to fight this i'm just going to go here for a month because it's kind of awesome it's like, a vacation it's a vacation for my family nagging me i get to do yoga meet new people and they feed us it's nice here and of course, because it's a fairy tale realm, the rules aren't what they are stated. Like, mm -hmm. they're not going to transform her into a skinnier person. They're doing some other sinister thing that you have to, like, wait for that to be revealed what it is. And, yeah, I, I just found that, like, really, like, convincing. Mm -hmm. Like, I could see how someone would, like, lose themselves in that thing. You know, just stop their skepticism. Like, put your skepticism on hold and just be like, I'm going to have as much fun here as possible. 
and usually when someone walks into the like in Pan's Labyrinth or something where she walks into the banquet where the uh, the pale man is like it's like don't eat the food don't eat the food but in this case I'm like oh please enjoy yeah like, no like <laughs> enjoy yourselves for this month like obviously they're not gonna be able to change your personalities like you be you just eat all their nice food while you're at it uh, this movie is also very enticing because of the cast oh my god like for a first time director like. She killed it with the casting. We've got uh, Emma Roberts in the lead role, who mm-hmm. between this and Black Coat's Daughter and Nerve has got a nice little genre catalog going. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Aquafina, who's hot as fuck right now. Like she's burning up projects, so that's a great get for her. Yeah. Uh, Danielle McDonald, who we really liked in Patty Cakes. And, and she was also in Dumplin' with Jennifer Aniston. Yeah, I never saw that, but it's got drag queens in it. So I don't know yeah, why it's, I haven't it's seen on it. Netflix. Yeah. It's because we can see it anytime. That's probably better. And uh, the main, like, dominatrix-type villain is played by Mila Jovovich. Just like, what? Which, she's great in genre stuff. I love watching her. And she's such a calm villain in this. She's just sort of, like, patiently chipping these uh, thorns off of roses and, like, waiting for her opportunity to, like, do the same to these girls. Like, get rid of their little blemishes and, like, turn them into, like, fake obedient versions of themselves. And I, I found her, like, really, you know, interesting in the film. Almost to the point where I wish there was more of her. Yeah. Uh, but she does get some, like, really big over-the-top moments as the story unfolds. But really, if you like, like, high femme, like, fantasy worlds and, like, over-the-top fashion and production design where things very lush and just, like... This was a smaller, cheaper indie film, but it did not look cheap. It looked so baroque and so lush. All of the materials, like the actual materials of their clothing looked very rich. The gardens were beautiful and perfectly kept. Everything just looked nice. Yeah. In a way that, you know, sometimes you can't afford to. Sometimes you need to trim trim stuff around the, the edges to, to get it all to fit within your budget. But they did great on that. Yeah, the visual craft of it is just really beautiful. Mm-hmm. I really like that this premise that feels like a... You know, honestly, erotic fiction like premise. This like obedient girl school. It never goes gross. Like Mm-mm. most of it, I feel like it almost passes like PG. Yeah. Uh, but it still generates this menace to it, and it still stays like fully committed and sincere. Um, where it could have easily like turned it into a joke. Even something like um the little hours or something where it's like the nuns who are in this like idyllic. Italian village like that becomes this like farce this movie's not a farce it's it's very mm-hmm. serious it feels like reading a fairy tale from like a hundred years ago I mean the only thing that it's not strong in is the fact that it is so heavily reliant on a fairy tale we all know how fairy tales work oh yeah We've, we are, we know the plot to this there's nothing that new like you're not gonna see anything you didn't expect to see Which... there's a few maybe surprising moments but you know the plot to it once you start watching it that's pretty standard for a genre film festival, though. Like, yeah. that's what genre is, is like there's a it's set template, template yeah. and how you subvert or Confirm. elevate the yeah. details are, are, is how you make an excellent film. Yeah. And this was one of my favorites, for yeah, sure. Yeah, it was fun. One of my favorites did subvert my expectations, though, um, which was One Cut of the Dead. That one did go places I did not expect. It's this Japanese zombie movie that the title kind of awkwardly hints at this, but... I don't know if it's lost in translation a little bit, but it's called One Cut of the Dead because it's about a one-cut zombie film, like a single-take zombie movie where the take doesn't break and you watch these actors avoid being torn apart by the undead. Why am I talking about this zombie movie? Zombies are so boring in 2019, like, at this point. Why are you talking about it, Brandon? 
Well, it starts off with this like meta remove where like the characters in the film are making a zombie movie and then that is attacked and disrupted by the actual zombies mm-hmm. like in the picture. And that is the first kind of like surprise of the movie is about that like level of like meta separation. And then later as the take goes on, it's just impressive that this like small crew is pulling this off like it's obviously like a really cheap production of just like you know five to ten people who are you know doing all this handheld cinematography and going using every inch of this like set that they've carved out to like run around and, and stage this like pretty convincing b-movie it's a little awkward there's like moments where like the camera gets covered in like spittle or fake blood by accident or there's like this hesitation where like an actor's waiting for their cue and you can see that they're sort of like stalling for like the next thing to come up and the more that happens, the more you're, like, just kind of proud of them for, like, putting on this, like, small production. And then the movie completely changes the rules of what you're watching. And I cannot give it away. So I don't know how much more I can even talk about this. But the movie... Is a delightful gift to its viewers. Especially if they go in blind. You have to give it your patience. Like, if a low-key, charming, you know, micro-budget zombie picture where these like small crew is just putting on a show. If that doesn't sound like good enough to hold your attention, you might lose what makes this special. You have to pay attention to the details of how that unfolds. And the movie shows you the same thing a second time in a brilliant way that sort of becomes this like love letter to filmmaking in general and has nothing to do with zombies. It's more about craft and like rolling with the punches and putting on a show than it is about the undead. It's so hard to recommend it without ruining what makes it special, but also like emphasizing how much attention and time you have to give it. But once it got there and once it like changed the rules a couple times, it is the hardest I've laughed in a movie theater in a long while. I was applauding and like doubling over with laughter. I haven't had that in a comedy in a while. It was just so good. Um, one of the bigger surprises of the festival for me. I didn't see that one, so I very much regret it. I also laughed a lot in our favorite movie we saw at the festival. Ooh, you did, didn't you? I was scolded by a stranger for laughing at this movie um, screening. As was uh, Charles, who we talked about earlier. He was sitting next to us, and uh, we were both scolded by this um, woman who uh, told us that what we were watching was not a comedy and that we were ruining her experience watching it. Later in the film, she started laughing as well, and I think it gradually becomes more and more of a comedy as it goes on, or at least reveals what it's doing a little more blatantly. It's called In Fabric by Peter Strickland. It's great. It's so good. It's so good. It might be my favorite Peter Strickland film now. Ooh, I think the Duke of Burgundy is better. Duke of Burgundy is good, but I don't know. Duke of Burgundy plays with the plot a little more in a way that we really like, but I don't know. And I think both of those movies do what we said that Paradise Hills doesn't do, Mm -hmm. where it's a little cheeky and winking and, like, campy, but in this, like, kind of subtle way. Yeah. It's not entirely serious. And I think in Fabric, uh, even more so, leans into the humor of how ridiculous it is. Yeah, no, in Fabric, and I understand that woman's frustration, because it didn't come off initially as a comedy. It's so fucking funny, But it's so fucking funny. (laughs) Well, let's describe what the movie is first off, just to to justify this a little bit. It's kind of like a Jalo film. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's set in the 70s, but it also kind of feels like it's now. It's living in this like liminal space between... Uh, The film was 100% set in the 1980s. In the 80s? Yes. Okay. That was 1980s England. 
Sure. It's mostly set in this department store that is evil. Mm-hmm. And they are selling this dress that fits everyone who wears it because yeah. it is cursed. Mm-hmm. And once you wear it, you are haunted by it until you die. Uh, it actively tries to kill you, kind of like um, Deathbed, the bed that eats. It, it becomes this inanimate object that tries to murder you. Mm-hmm. And it also just ruins your life in other ways. You lose your job. You can't think about anything but the dress. You have nightmares, like really fucked up nightmares where you see your dead mother, but then you realize you are your dead mother. And then everyone thinks you smell bad because you're literally rotting. But you're also wearing the dress. And you look good in it. And the reason you might not see this ridiculous premise as like a comedy first off is that it uses a lot of like 70s art film techniques it's mm-hmm. it's got a lot of giallo influences if nothing else like there's a lot of like high fashion hot couture imagery in the department store the shots of the fashion reminded me a lot of phantom thread oh for sure like and that's not well it is a comedy i laughed again, at that one too <laughs> Again, people think that's not a comedy because it's about something serious, like fashion. Fashion had to fight very hard to be taken seriously, and now we'll not give that place up. Yeah, and in Phantom Thread as well, we were laughing before other people started laughing too. It was like they had learned that it was okay to laugh. Yeah. Because they're both very ridiculous and heightened films. Mm -hmm. And I think in this case, part of it too is that Strickland is actively trying to creep you out as well. Yeah, no, it's creepy. It's scary. Yeah, I was unnerved by a lot of the imagery. There's a lot of, like, this is so hard to convey because it's through editing, but there's a lot of, like, old catalog images um, sort of collaged in this, like, spooky montage. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, it's almost like experimental film, whatever that old uh, short film is that's just butterfly wings through a projector lens. Like, it's like that. It's like this, like, uh, image, quick image, flashing image, image, yeah. of, like, like, archival Image catalogs. of a woman's dead eyes. Image of a woman's dead eyes. Image of a woman's dead eyes with a different hairstyle. Like, it's that kind of thing over and over again. There's a lot of um, glitchy commercials that are highly, like, uh, they look almost 8-bit. Uh, the way that they're like portrayed on the TV screen where you see like a lot of like like diagonal lines like coming up next at the department store sale of the year and like you know like bad 80s graphics yeah and the the store is run by these like Nosferatu types uh, one of them looks exactly like Sasha Valor from Drag Race like I'm slightly upset that Sasha Valor did not play this part and because she would have killed it that character would have been so perfect for Sasha Valor. All of the department store shopkeepers are women who, as we later find out, are bald as eggs, which also remind me a lot of witches, the Roald Dahl story. So they're all bald, they all wear wigs, and the wigs are these very large, fanciful Gibson girl pompadours from the Victorian era, and they're all wearing Victorian period morning dresses that are covered you know in like detailed like jet black buttons the black cording black lace big bustles so very over the top 1890s witch women with long red nails and like the main lady has a very thick Eastern European accent. And overly verbose in the way she describes everything. Yeah, this is the 1980s in Britain. They're not necessarily at their most articulate, you know? Especially a department store that is having a constant sale where everything is like the lowest price of the year. Like, these customers are just normal working class people. And she's describing everything like Oscar Wilde would like describe like the costumes for Salome. 
What's their um, dressing room called? That's like the transformation realm or something. Transformation like sphere was yeah. what their <laughs> completely normal dressing rooms were called. Just you know, little box with like a curtain. Why? Why they called them? I don't know. They were just weird, overly verbose people, and that's what the initial chuckling was over. Was because her dialogue was so overwritten and so purple that we could not help but laugh at it because it was unmoored from reality. Like even the band that does the uh, music, their their name. I don't even know if there's a real band or not, but their name is the Cavern of Antimatter. Uh, like everything is just so like overly written in that Which, way. That's a Peter Strickland thing. Like my one of my favorite like little moments in Duke of Burgundy is during the opening title cards where it says "Perfume by." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because there's a perfume credit. <laughs> there's a perfume credit for a film that is not Notorama. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the perfume smells like. Why did they? Was there perfume on set? No, of course not. Probably. It's just that he wanted you to see that and like set the mood for a 70s melodrama which is what Duke of Burgundy kind of follows the plot of and these uh hot couture Nosferatu types have a sexual obsession with um, mannequins oh yes and we watch in you know kind of long leering detail like how they satisfy these sexual urges that they have for mannequins um in these like sort of like ritualistic acts and it's both really disturbing and really funny and I found that almost like teeter-tottering seesaw like reaction I was having that was both genuine laughter because it was funny and nervous laughter because I was being very like tormented by like the weird shit I was watching. Just very satisfying. Like I love this movie. It's gonna turn a lot of people off, but oh, yeah. it, if you have fun with it, I think it's gonna be one of your favorite movies of the year like it, it, if it hits your particular like pleasure centers it, it, it'll very much satisfy you yeah and and even though there's this like very like you know over the top florid purple prose like sections of it there's also these sections where these like normal people are like what the hell this dress is giving me a rash i'm having weird nightmares and now my boss is criticizing my handshake and they're very like normal working class problems, but like turned up like that type of humor was like this uncomfortable workplace humor. And it just kept getting more and more ridiculous. Yeah, it was practically office space by the time it was over. Yeah, no, like and but like office space again filtered through Tim and Eric's like absurdity. Yeah. Like surrealistic like type of humor because like there's one scene where one of the wearers of the dress when they describe their job and what they're doing to people people get a sexual like high off of it and it's like a very mundane thing nobody actually does this in real life but like it's like someone reading a manual to you for how like how a clothes washer works and, and like people are like obviously starting to like get aroused but like also going into a trance kind of like when you scratch your dog's like back in the right spot and they just sort of like zone out and like their leg starts kicking like that's the look they have on their faces yeah and it's like anyone that that happens to even if they're annoyed with that person and do not want them to tell them the second this character starts like talking they all just like get that like zoned look and i was kind of shocked by how much the movie becomes about labor and mm -hmm. like corporate speak and like just work yeah no it's about like capitalism and like how it destroys lives and like automation it's about a lot of things it's also about sexual fetishes and a killer dress and the dress literally goes around killing like christine the car or the deathbed or you know all There's kinds of killer object movies shots 
that are shot from like these really low Dutch angles of the dress like flying through the air like floating through it and it looks it looks like a vampire squid it looks like that undersea photography of like deep sea creatures where you just see this like black screen and this like red dress billowing across it like it's a squid about to wrap itself around you and it's gorgeous but also ridiculous oh yeah I mean, a lot of mixed feelings, and they were all positive. Yeah. That's like the way I could put it. Yeah, and there's all these great actors in it. The lead actress in the first section, uh, I had just seen her on Good Omens. She plays, like, the nun that swaps the babies on accident (laughs) uh, and, you know, sets off the chain of events. Um, She was great. I don't know her name, but she's a British actress, so you'll see her in something soon. Also, Gwendolyn Christie from Game of Thrones. She plays a pervert. Yeah, she's she's great. She's good. There's a lot of cunnilingus humor in the movie. Mm-hmm. A lot of cunnilingus <laughs> humor, which that makes sense for Peter Strickland. That seems to be a pet subject of his. I'm, I don't remember any other actors out of the film, but... Um. The fiance in one of the later sections of the film, she was in Call the Midwife for an uh, episode yeah, right. and a couple other things I had seen, just because I do watch a lot of British television. And there's only 10 British actors. There's only 10 British actors, y'all. Do you have any variations or, like, adjustments to this, like, ranking of films I've come up with? You want to hear them again? Yeah, tell them to me. So, at number five, I had Greener Grass. Mm -hmm. At number four, I had Come to Daddy. Mm -hmm. Number three, Paradise Hills. Mm -hmm. Number two, One Cut of the Dead, Mm -hmm. which you didn't see. I didn't see. And then one number one in Fabric was my favorite. Okay, so, you know, obviously I have to cut One Cut of the Dead out completely. Sorry, haven't seen it. But no, my list would be a little different. I probably would have it... Ooh, I don't know what I'd put in last place. It seems so mean to do so. I mean, you're saying these are five favorite films you saw at a great film festival. Four. Right. Because, you know, Greener Grass was a little exhausting by the end, but then Paradise Hills, you know, as beautiful as it was, it wasn't a huge amount of depth to the plot. So... And it's pretty long, too. It's pretty, almost full two hours. It's pretty long. I, I felt that one, you know? Like, I was really like, it's time for me to wrap this one up. So, you know, those two were my two, like, bottom two-ish... And then Come to Daddy and then in Fabric. So you liked Come to Daddy a little I, more than I did. Maybe. I liked Come to Daddy yeah. a lot. I mean, not just because of Elijah Wood, y'all. Right. I mean, he was great in it. Yeah. But, uh, and apparently a very charming person in real life, too. Yeah. And it also reminded me a lot of um, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, which oh, also yeah, it was like... like a Jeremy Saulnier kind of vibe. Yeah, it was like an interpersonal drama that suddenly like got nasty in a really fun way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I would excuse the Paradise Hills like going on a little long just because I did not mind hanging out in that world. Yeah. Um, and there are a few movies like that where you kind of have to have it go long just because you need to sink into it. It's like you need to lose yourself to it a little. And that's also part of the plot in that film. Is like, losing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I excuse it a little bit, but I definitely agree that it's a little long in the tooth. Even um, Greener Grass could have been like 70 minutes instead of 90 minutes, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I mean, but we also (laughs) would like to trim every movie. Especially when you see 10 movies in four days. I don't know. I think our opinion uh, doesn't really change throughout the year. We love trimming movies. Oh, you're right. You're right. I wish people would let us like just re-edit movies for ourselves for our own private library because I could could trim all kinds of time off movies. I'd love to do it. Um, I had a great festival this year. I mean, last year I only saw three films and I liked every single one a lot. Uh, this year I saw 10 films and I liked most of them a lot and a couple of them were okay. Like that's not a bad... No. I mean, I usually do much worse at festivals. This yeah. is very well curated. 
Um, I don't know if it'll ever be back because we have a severe shortage of movie theaters within Orleans Parish at this point since Canal Place is closed. But we have no idea what's going to be in the Canal Place spot next year. So Maybe it'll still be a movie theater next year. Maybe Elijah Wood will hear this podcast, be charmed by us, and he will agree to help save the community center. I mean, movie theater. Um, <laughs> maybe Alamo Draft House will move into the space or... Maybe, I don't know, Renee over at Zeitgeist will decide, you know what? What's one major investment? Let's let's do two. Let's let's open a second. Let's say you are the kind of person who has enough money to travel to a film festival. Mm-hmm. Would this be one of your destination ones before like Fantastic Fest or TIFF or something? I think it has the potential to be, especially because they offer the immersive experiences and the very much the thing that they miss is they wish they could do it all in one hotel. That was something that they really enjoyed doing because it did create this like very collegial vibe for all the moviegoers, like being essentially snowed in, you know, that feeling, which also is horrific. For sure. <laughs> so I think they really want to help create an atmosphere with their horror film fest and not just curate a lot of good movies because, again, Fantastic Fast does this. Even like what TIFF has like a whole like night of horror movies. Yeah, they have um, Midnight Madness at TIFF plays a bunch of weird shit. Yeah, yeah. so like it, people already do this and people do it well. So I think I think that is their strong point is this whole like creation of a vibe and a culture around it. I just it is very hot here at this time of year. <laughs> they want to keep doing it at this time of year. That could be a problem. It is funny seeing all these nerds and wearing all black, like standing in the New Orleans sunlight in June. It's it's hideous. It's, June is our hottest time of the year. As <laughs> no, far as, August. August and September are like by temperature our hottest time of the year, but it rains every day in August oh, I see, and September. Right, yeah. There is no rain in the month of June. June is our drought month. I think for Overlook too, like one thing I think is really attractive about it is that it's a manageable amount of films. I mean, I saw like two thirds of what they have to offer. It was actually pretty easy to see all of them. They did two showings of everything, and they never like had that many clashes. Um, so if you wanted to see every single film, I think it was almost possible. I saw most of it. I, yeah. I could have pushed myself a little more, but I, yeah. you know, like to eat meals and go to sleep too. So yeah. the things <laughs> we skipped mostly were like um, all day Saturday at Hotel Peter and Paul. They had panels and um q a's and discussions and podcast recordings we missed all of that kind of stuff if it was a movie we weren't there for it yeah I was squeezing um, in as many features as we I could. wanted to see features so we we skipped all that but no i think and we do have more haunted hotels in new orleans than anywhere else and i found out why today can i tell uh, yeah, can I tell the story okay so my friend caitlin levy uh just posted the story on facebook so the reason why New Orleans has so many haunted hotels is because when we had outbreaks of malaria, we did not have enough places to put all the bodies. And malaria, you know, would sweep through the city in waves and kill, you know, a couple hundred people in like a span of like two or three weeks. And it just would do that over and over again. So we kept running out of places to put bodies until we could get them in the ground. And so we would put bodies on ice and wrap them in, you know, hay and stuff, things to insulate them and then put them anywhere. And usually we would seize the hotels for that. Most of our hotels were relatively empty at that time of year because everybody leaves New Orleans during the summer so that they didn't die of yellow fever. So we didn't have tourists during our yellow fever period. So yeah, we stuffed all of our hotels with dead and dying people and now they're full of dead and dying souls. And that's why Overlook needs to come back next year. Yeah. Make full use of those haunted hotels. I get it. They don't have a huge budget, so they can't just buy like three adjacent hotel spaces on like, you know, the upper upper side of Bourbon or something like that. Like there's all kinds of little small boutique hotels that are full of ghosts, but eh. 
And I have seen New Orleans Film Fest stage entire movie festivals here in unconventional theater spaces. Like, yeah. just do those pop-up screens with the fold-up bleacher seats. It, it is possible. Yep. No, they can definitely do it. So hopefully they'll be back. I, I enjoyed them very much both times they came. There's conference rooms, y'all. Turn some conference rooms into screening rooms. You can do it. And I'll be taking my sweet time, but I will be posting um, individual reviews for all 10 movies we talked about today if you want to hear more about them. I mean, it was a pretty quick hit for each each thing we talked about. Hopefully I'll remember as many details as I can because the memory is already fading because we packed in so much crap in one weekend. We also didn't get a lot of sleep. I made weird food choices. Oh, yeah. So we didn't like eat well this weekend, which... I- I, I apologize to we, you. We and had a the room viewers. temperature oyster. That was Ooh. that was the most horrifying thing that happened. Oh yeah, <laughs> we we said we were gonna go eat some mediocre sushi, and we did. Oh god. Uh, well, if we don't die from food poisoning, we'll be back next week with another episode. <laughs> but even if we do die, we'll still be back. Ooh, swamp flakes. Spooky. Bye. 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 Melacostraca, 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 Melacostraca.